If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to the show. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson, who is listening at home going, What are you doing to my show? That's okay. Uh, let me tell you what's coming up on the show today, because it is jam, jam, jam-packed. We're going to be chatting about the idea of capping grocery prices. This is something that uh, some people are now suggesting. We should freeze grocery prices. Is this the way to fix things? Or is this a recipe, pardon the unnecessary and unintentional pun, a recipe for disaster? Uh, we'll be talking about civil war in the United States. This is bizarre. But some people are now saying that the Americans are heading towards a civil war. Hmm. Uh, one of the friends from the TV show Friends had a birthday this week, a very significant birthday, which I think for anyone who was a fan of the show is going to make you feel very, very, very old and say something about the role pop culture plays in how we follow and chart our path as far as how we feel about ourselves. We'll get into that this hour. Uh, drinking in parks. Public parks, Toronto is pushing or is allowing now people to drink in public parks. Is that something we want to have in Hamilton? We're going to go to the phones and hear from you on that one. So be, be ready to have your say on that one. We're going to talk about banning plastic, a lot of banning today, banning plastic bags. There is uh, big news. If you are a Taylor Swift fan, she is going to be holding six. We learned this today. You just heard it on the news. Six, six shows at Rogers Center in Toronto. That's not Rogers, like that's a, that's a big place for six shows, but I guess they figure they can, they can sell it. Um, I know one person who won't be spending money on the tickets, but that, I'm pointing at myself, but that's, I may be the only one because if you're selling out that place six times, that is a lot of people putting a lot of money on the table. And these are not cheap tickets. We'll get into that with Eric Alper. Here's one that, uh, that may throw you off a bit that, uh, according to our age, because of our aging population, our personal income, our per person income is going to begin dropping by not a little bit. That's the theory. Anyway, we'll talk about that one. Uh, and we potentially could have a strike here in the city with our unionized workers. They have received a no board report heading towards that. Because I believe in part, the city already gave two raises this year to its non-unionized workers. Well, why would the unionized workers not then want a similar thing? But that's a huge, huge wallop of money. How are we going to get around this one? We'll talk about that later in the show as well. We have got the Twitter poll. We've got uh, the Twitter poll, by the way, is about one of the things we're going to talk about, about the drinking alcohol in the parks in Toronto. Should Hamilton do the same? 27 parks in Toronto are going to allow legalized alcohol drinking. Uh, do you think Hamilton should do the same? Go to Twitter or X and cast your vote. Yes or no. I want to hear from you on that one. Um, yesterday's Twitter poll, Donald Trump has been indicted on felony charges for trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Would you be surprised if he won the 2024 US election? 76% of you say, nope, not surprised at all. So there's, uh, there's yesterday, but go cast your vote. We have Hammerhead Trivia coming up. That's at, uh, in the five o'clock hour. We've got tickets to go see, well, we got tickets for all kinds of stuff. So we'll, we'll tell you about that. Uh, you just have to be the first caller in who gets the answer correct and you'll win those tickets. We'll tell you about that later, but early in the five o'clock hour, be ready to call in. And I warn you of one thing. If I pause at any point today. It's probably just me trying to quietly stifle a bit of a burp. The, the, the studio right now could be potentially seen as dangerous. I spent early this afternoon, my wife and I, and my son and his girlfriend went down to Easterbrooks for lunch. One of the great places in the city. If you get a chance, if you've never been to Easterbrooks, I don't know that you can actually literally officially consider yourself a resident of this area of the country, of Hamilton or Burlington. You have to visit Easterbrooks at some point to be counted as one of the people. But anyway, when you get there, uh, great packed, it was packed for lunch today. But, uh, as I usually do, I got the breathalyzer, which is just like dollops of garlic and onions. And I don't even know what else was on there. I'm concerned that I'm trying to hold down the burps in here because right now any, we, it's good. We don't have any guests in studio this afternoon because they not, they may not make it through a segment. It is, it is rough in here. When I talked to my producer, Will, earlier today, we were talking about the topics. 
He goes, what are you doing? Well, I was gargling because he couldn't understand me because I was trying desperately to diminish. If you've ever had one of these breathalyzer hot dogs, you will know what I'm talking about. They are fantastic, but they are absolutely not recommended if you're going to be near anybody for the next 24 hours. Yeah, I'm surprised you uh, didn't do one of the the, the remote broadcasts or something like uh, use some kick- COVID protocol. Yeah, I was kicked out of my house. I wasn't allowed into the basement to do my <laughs> into my studio there because, you know, who knows what the paint might have peeled off the walls. It is, I, it is rough in here right now. I, I'm going to go get the duct tape and seal you in there for the next three hours, okay? This, this, uh, I'm telling you, go get a breathalyzer. And um, say hi to Blake. Blake is behind the counter. Blake Easterbrook runs the place. Good guy. Uh, Doing a great job keeping that place just hopping. I mean, it was jammed today. But if you do have a breathalyzer, I advise you be, have your calendar set up so you can be alone for the next while. This is, yeah, thank you. That was not me. That was a sound of that. Yeah. This is not a food. This is not a person friend friendly food. Delicious, but it is, um, it's, it's, it's not advised to be near anyone. Anyway. So if you hear like a, a sudden pause when I'm talking today, I'm just trying to make sure that I don't melt the microphone. That's all. We'll do our best. I'm going to tell you that, uh, the cost of things is up these days especially food. And I know you're saying, really? Things are more expensive today? I hadn't noticed. Uh-huh. Uh, it is, it is not just housing. Housing is certainly prices are up, but everything seems to be up and leading the way are grocery bills. It is becoming, it has become, not is, it has become very expensive to eat, especially to eat well. And things have been tried. The interest rates have gone up and they've tried to bring down inflation and all these things still going up. So what do we do about it? Well, there's lots of people that have lots of different suggestions, uh, including right to you, maybe we should freeze grocery prices, cap them. Sellers can't sell for more than this. What is the idea? What is the answer to this one? Michael von Massau is the OAC chair uh, in food system leadership and associate professor in food agriculture and resource economics at the University of Guelph. He joins us now. Thank you for this. Oh, thank you for having me. This is uh, this is a complicated. No, I mean not complicated. This is a confusing one for a lot of people because all the things that have been done to try and curb inflation have had effects on many things in our society, but food seems to have somehow dodged that bullet entirely. Well, yeah. So we use interest rates to encourage saving, um, discourage spending, so to moderate demand. And so what it does is we see uh, the, the impact on things that that are discretionary spending. We can defer a new car purchase. We can defer a new computer purchase or a new phone purchase or that sort of thing. Food is necessary. We eat it every day. And so uh, it doesn't really, demand for food doesn't get changed by interest rates. So we don't see, we don't see prices come down as a result of that. I think it's important too, to remember that the reasons the prices of food are going up are different from from the reasons many of the other things are going up, uh, and and so like it what? makes sense like that what? we would well. Uh, we're, we're having kind of a perfect storm right now. So the war in Ukraine has had a significant impact. We've seen pasta go up. We've seen flour go up. We've seen bread go up and those sorts of things, all because wheat is coming less easily out of, out of Ukraine. Same has happened for vegetable oils because they are a significant exporter of sunflower oil. So margarine is going up, vegetable oil, even substitutes that are not direct canola oil because, because demand for all of those have gone up. We've seen extreme weather. Other events have have a significant impact on food prices. This past winter, we saw lettuce and tomatoes go up a bunch because of rain in the Salinas Valley. Uh, you know, there, there's been drought in in the in some southern U.S. states, uh, and in the winter, we're paying for those in 
it, with a weaker Canadian dollar. So that's making things worse. So, and I could go on and on. There, there are just, there's, there's almost this perfect storm of impacts that are raising the prices of different things differently. And we're just seeing sort of the average increase. What about, uh, and the one word you didn't mention, but a lot of people do is greed. Oh, you know, Galen Weston and all those people who run the businesses, they're just greedy and they're just gouging us. Is that a fair assessment or is that taking a very complicated thing and make, just making it very easy because, you know, they're doing okay right now? Well, they are. They're making money and and we can be critical of them for making money. But uh, I don't think there's any evidence that they are contributing to food price inflation. And I'm not the only one saying that. The Bank of Canada came out and said that they don't think grocers are are are, are making a significant contribution to, f- to food price inflation. It's easy for us to blame. That's where we're feeling these price increases. That's where we're seeing those price increases. But there are factors throughout the supply chain uh, that are causing them. So there have been suggestions even this week, I can't remember who it was who made the suggestion, but there have been suggestions that, you know, one answer here is just to freeze the grocery prices. Just like the government says, beef can only be this price, dairy can only be whatever. Is that a reasonable then move to deal with this or does that create its own set of problems? Well, I think I think that sort of approach to price control uh, is fraught with with problems. Uh, and. And there is, I think, also some questions of fairness. Um, you know, what we're saying is, okay, banks can make as much as they want. Gasoline companies can make as much as they want. I, th- I but, but food companies can't. I think the other thing to keep in mind is we're concerned that the big guys are abusing the system. But if we fix grocery prices, either that means those small independents will struggle more or that we've given an advantage to to the big guys. So I think it's it's a it's a good idea in principle it's very hard to to implement. If we want to do something to re, to to provide relief, uh, we we need to raise money. Let's let's do a broader tax increase. I know people hate to hear that, but then we can do direct transfers to people in order like we did with the GST tax credit. Uh, uh, this summer in order to help people deal with those price increases. I think, I think there's lots of things that can go wrong if we try to, if we try to fix grocery prices. Is there not one, we only have a few seconds here, but is there not one other issue here that some of the reason for some of the price increases in grocery are, for example, the price of gas, you have to make, you have to farm, you then have to bring the food to the producers or to the, the manufacturers, then to the distributors, then... And if gas prices and carbon tax increases are going, I mean, there are government things that are also driving up the price of food too, correct? Well, well, I think transportation costs, I think labor costs, there are a bunch of things that are increasing the cost across the food system. But yes, transportation costs matters as well. It's, uh, it's complicated. It's, it's, I, I'm, I, I appreciate you explaining it because it's way more complicated than simply saying, well, just stop letting them set their prices, have someone else set their prices. I, that, that I believe was done in 1960s in a place on the other side of the world, perhaps some, some place didn't necessarily work out so well. Uh, I yeah. really appreciate you doing this. Thank you for the time today. Well, thanks and have a great day. You as well. That's uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, I I feel very strongly actually, but I don't know that we want to be moving towards Soviet era, Soviet style government controls like that, that say, here's what you can charge for something. But then the government can continue to raise as much taxes and charge essentially as much as it wants to do. I mean, it just, you, you start getting into some really dicey areas here. If the government starts saying, well, we can do whatever we want. But you can only do what we tell you you can do. You, you see where that starts to go. That becomes a very concerning, I think, attitude. But there are some who like it. There are some who like it, especially when it comes to food prices. This is a, a kind of a crazy thing to think about. Because when we look around the world, we see wars, we see civil wars, we see them in Africa, we see them in other places. And we never would really contemplate that we could see one in North America up close, but there's a piece in theconversation.com. It's a great uh, online publication for great think pieces and debates. Uh, America is on the brink of another civil war. This one fueled by Donald Trump. The author is Jason Opel, who's a professor in the Department of History and Classical Studies with McGill University, who joins us now. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. 
This is, um, I think a lot of people over the last number of years have kind of thought this, but as soon as they start to think it, they go, yeah, come on. No, not really. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, things are nasty down there politically, but not really a civil war. Do you, do you really believe that there could be violence that erupts eventually in the form of a real civil war or a political civil war? It's a, it's a good question and a, and a crucial distinction. So I don't mean in the sense of a, you know, sort of one group of states fighting another group of states in a kind of, you know, large scale military encounters of the kind one witnessed in the 1860s. But what I do mean is that there's a real potential for political, sustained political violence, replacing normal constitutional politics. And in addition, I mean that there is a real possibility in bad days, I even think an actual probability of political paralysis and dysfunction of the kind that is often, you know, that creates a vacuum of the kind that's often filled with violence. Are we not and already think, there? Yeah, but Are we not already there? I mean, I, I would suggest that what you're describing, what you just described sounds pretty much like where they are right now. Well, on the day of January 6th, that is correct. I mean, there was no one in charge of the United States at that time. There, you know, there was a 12-hour period where I don't know who the National Security Advisor would have consulted had there been an emergency of some kind, right? So that was a day that was awful, violent, and you know, it, it, a complete collapse of the constitutional order. But it did not last. Now, and in over the past two plus years and such, you know, there's vitriol, there's um, an unusual degree of vehemence and even violence and rhetoric, but the governments, plural, state, federal, local, are functioning, policies are being made, uh, laws are being passed, you know, the, the, the American political system is still functioning, um, but I'm just seeing signs of late that come 2024, uh, the collision of Donald Trump's criminal docket and the presidential election once thing has to give. And I'm really concerned um, that that will lead to a more prolonged form of, of violence. I, I would suggest too that, um, I mean, right now we're seeing that criminal, well, we saw Donald Trump impeached. We're seeing criminal charges brought against Donald Trump. I, I absolutely believe, and you or anyone else could say that I'm completely bonkers here, but I believe that it's inevitable now that because of the political situation down there, it is inevitable that when Joe Biden's time in office is up, he will face criminal charges. And I don't know what for. I just know that we saw impeachment become something that was only Richard Nixon. And now we've seen it multiple times. I just see everything that moves along, something happens, it becomes the new norm. I fully expect Joe Biden to be charged with something when he's out of office and that to become the new thing for every president. I, I would agree to a point. I think that impeachment as a political, you know, what was once thought to be the political kind of nuclear option has unfortunately been um, to some degree normalized. There's already movement afoot in the Republican-controlled House representatives to impeach Mr. Biden under uh, for charges that are not yet specified. Um, but impeachment is not, you know, you're going to jail, right? Impeachment is an effort to get one out of office, which almost always fails because the constitutional uh, rules for actually removing someone are so high. Um, criminal charges, I mean, that is a whole different sort of thing. You know, you, you're really talking in that context where you're just not a, a functioning democracy anymore if political defeats lead to jail time or worse for the side that loses. And, you know, I want to be, you know, uh, you know, let's be clear here. The United States has been a remarkably stable constitutional order for more than two centuries. The current you know, rules for for um, adjudicating the Electoral College, no one's ever heard of because they didn't need to hear about them because they were working extremely well for over 130 years since the 1878 statute. The United States has been remarkably stable. It's so much that it makes it seems impossible to not function, but it's close to not functioning. It's close to seizing up in a violent way. And it really concerns me. And look, I think, I think your points are very, very valid. My idea is I didn't necessarily suggest, and I'm not suggesting that Biden would go to jail. I don't right. even, I don't know that Donald Trump would go to jail. Like anything else, it doesn't mean because you're charged even that you're guilty. It, charges can be sure. scurrilous uh, for whatever. I just, when in a country where 
appointments and elections are political for judges, for prosecutors, whatever. Um, and, and in a country where everything now is political and divided, it only makes sense that those people are going to, for either side, use their position to score political points. You're correct. And it does bring up a really important point for, well, for Canada and for any other constitutional democracy that wants to remain that way. And that is that it's really a bad idea to nationalize and make ideological every single bit of electoral politics. There is no reason to do so. I mean, prior to the mid-1990s in the United States, there were plenty of towns, cities, counties, and municipalities in democratic areas with Republican uh, uh, sheriffs and judges and mayors. And it worked fine because the issues were local. They were about how, whether we should build this highway or what, what the deal should be between uh, um, private and public schools, things that can be worked out reasonably. Since that time, everything, and I mean everything, down to you know, town level trash collecting has become part of an ideological bonfire, uh, dumpster fire increasingly. And it's just terrible. It really is, a, it is a, um, an extraordinarily important cautionary tale that a lot of democratic politics, small d democratic politics, should be boring, local, and practical, and not national and ideological. And I understand the um, the attraction, I suppose. That's not the right word. You'll understand what I'm getting at. The, the idea of looking at Donald Trump as the cause of everything. Now, Donald Trump may be the exclamation mark, but I mean, you go back to... George Bush, the second one, and you had people on the other side wanting him jailed and calling him war criminal and all like it's, this has been something that's, it's not brand new with Donald Trump. This has been building again on both sides of the aisle for what, 20, 25 years now. I think you can make a, you, you know, it's always important in history to try to, you know, try to figure out where did things start to really change. It, it does seem that the early to mid 1990s were a real Bill uh, shifting point. It, in, in terms of, of the, the nature uh, of politics in being not just polarized, but as I say, made ideological unnecessarily. Um, but if I may, I just would say one thing, and that yeah. is that Donald Trump, yes, he's a symptom of many things. Yes, he's an exclamation point in, any, in any th many things. But he is a force and a host unto himself. He truly, uh, there is no parallel in American history for a leader of this kind. There really isn't. I've squinted and stared. I simply cannot find it. He is a new thing. And he's able to push, pull, take over institutions in a way that's simply astonishing. Um, and by institutions, I include the Republican Party. I mean, to have the Republican Party, which is the party of patriotic law and order, you know, law enforcement, now saying quite seriously that they want to defund or dismantle the FBI is just, it's unbelievable. And it is, it is not explicable by any other person than Donald Trump. It's uh, it's a fascinating piece. I, I would encourage people to give it a read. Uh, whether they agree, they disagree, it doesn't matter. It's something that you think about and you it spurs thought and, uh, and discussion with yourself. America is on the brink of another civil war, this one fueled by Donald Trump. It's at theconversation.com. It's written by Jason Opel. We really appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for discussing this. My pleasure. Phoebe, Lisa Kudrow was celebrating, was blowing out birthday candles today. She was celebrating a birthday. It was actually a couple days ago. Lisa Kudrow, Phoebe Buffay, the, the young woman that we all watched in Friends for all those years is 60 years old. Now, there's a lot of people who are 60 years old. It's not a point about, oh man, 60, so old. That's not the point. I'm getting there myself. The point is, how did that happen? And again, I understand what you're saying. I, you know, let me bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, I, I'm, I'm looking at this and I look in the mirror and I know how old I am and I am aware that the years are going by, but suddenly you see a celebrity that we watched on a TV show years ago blowing out 60 candles and I feel ancient. Oh, I feel you very, very much so. And, and you know, it's interesting because when we continue to watch reruns of Friends and sometimes we all do. These people are sort of, they, they stay at a moment in time for us. So we always look at them as they first started all those years ago. And when they actually grow older, not something that, you know, if you follow their lives maybe, but when they grow older and then you see them, you know, 30 years later, it's actually emotionally jarring. It is. Because it just, it just points to your own mortality. It points to the number of years you've lived. 
and the number of years that you've passed. And it's those pop culture moments that we use to sort of define, you know, times as, as, as we grow older. And Friends was very much so a defining pop culture moment because it was the first sort of group ensemble, young adult show, albeit very white, that, you know, a, a large swath at that time between 18 and 34 really related to, you know, week after week after week. And we grew up with this group of people. So we grew up with them to a certain point, And then, you know, the show ended, but they didn't stop growing older and neither did we. I said off the top that I can look in the mirror and see how old I am. But I actually, as I said that, I realized our celebrities, the people that we watch, that we listen to, our musicians, whatever, are they really our mirror to keep track of how old we are? We don't, we grow up every day and look at ourselves. We don't really change day to day, but all of a sudden those cele- those people are the ones who change. They're the ones who remind us how old we've become. Well, if they don't get a lot of work done to their faces, then yes, they do remind <laughs> us how old we are. But I, I, I know the picture that you're talking about. There was actually another one that was circulating on Instagram this week, and it was of Courtney Cox, and it was Jennifer Aniston and Lisa Kudrow, the three girls. And they had sort of like when they were younger, and then they had present day. And believe me, I was doing my little enlargement to see, well, what does she look like then, and what does she look like now? And gee, has she had done a lot of work? And yeah, you know, she still kind of looks young. Do you think that's natural, or is that enhanced? So we do measure ourselves by that. And by the same token, celebrities themselves fall into that type of trap. So they understand how the public that knows them and uh, acts as their fan base sees them and is used to seeing them. So there is that pressure of wanting to maintain that useful glow. And it's not just the faces of celebrities either. I was thinking about this the other day. We were playing a song on the show here, uh, Asia, Heat of the Moment, which for me, I mean, it still feels like it's, you know, that was a high school song. It still feels pretty fresh. And then that lyric comes on and goes, and now you find yourself in 82 and it's like a slap of cold water. It's like, oh yeah, it's been a while since I, that, that song's not quite so fresh as it was that I used to think it was. Well, you know, it's interesting when I'm in the car with my daughter and, I, you know, she's going through her mix on the phone and I start singing along with the lyrics and I turn to her, you know, this is a cover and it's not original. <laughs> and you know you're old when you're walking through the supermarket and, you know, they've got the, I call it Muzak still, but, you know, that's obviously a function of my age, and that you know every word and that you're humming along or singing along perhaps in line and the young cashier is looking at you going, Ladies have no idea what this song is. So, you know, there are those moments that, you know, keep us young and that when we remember things, you know, they trigger uh, moments of good times, of, of youth. And that's why that's what I love about pop culture. Because, you know, no matter where you grew up or what walk of life you come from, pop culture sort of has this thread that we everybody and that everybody can relate to. And, you know, we always used to define you know, passage of time by historical moments. Yeah. And I think that, you know, over the last 30, 40, 50 years, we have started to define passage of time by pop culture moments. Well, because uh, to the point that we now have everything on film uh, from all time. I mean, look, go back to a, a prime minister from 1890, um, you know, how many pictures are we going to have of them? Whereas nowadays, literally everything everybody famous does is on film, on camera, on tape, on rec- somewhere. Y- y- it's an actual almost time, second by second, frame by frame, recanting of, recounting of their life. You can get everything now. That, that's new. Yeah, you know what? I mean, I still remember taking, you know, Polaroid pictures or with, the, you know, the, the Kodak uh, cameras, the one where the, the bulb on the top would spin around every time you took a, you used the flash. So, you know, and I also think that, thank goodness, there's not a huge, you know, record of what I looked like when I was in my very awkward teenage years. But now there's no such thing. So if anybody wants to look you up or wants to do a deep dive on you, the likelihood is that they're going to find out all sorts of stuff. So, which is why, you know, you run into profiles, especially on Instagram, that are very, very carefully curated. 
because it's almost a photographic legacy. Exactly. How you've been moving through time. It is. Uh, it's a fascinating one. As I say, when I saw Lisa Kudrow uh, celebrating 60 today, boy, it wasn't Lisa Kudrow that I was thinking about. It was myself that, uh, holy cow, exactly. am I ever getting old. Uh, Alyssa Freeman, the very youthful, by the way. Alyssa only knows this stuff from stuff she's read because she's still only 24 and yet knows all this stuff. It's amazing. Alyssa, thanks for doing this. Exactly. On one side. <laughs> Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Our government, our federal government, um, you'll recall some time ago, put in a ban on plastic bags, single-use. Um, we got, we basically got rid of those, or we're in the process anyway. Well, now there is a new target that they are setting their sights on, and that is that we should get rid of food packaging, plastic food packaging, single-use food packaging. This is something that should be done to help the environment and stop pollution and, you know, and, and there is, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, that sounds like it's pretty good. But here's the thing. There's always something that you have to consider. There's always a symptom. There's always a spinoff. There's the butterfly effect, whatever you want to call it. If we were to now bring in a ban on single-use packaging, is there a downside? Let's get into that. Uh, Sylvain Lefebvre, Dr. Sylvain, or Charlotte was, uh, Sylvain Lefebvre was the coach of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, that's the first time I've done that with my next guest. Sylvain Charlebois is the man who's known as the food professor. He is the uh, professor of food distribution and policy and the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sorry for that one. You, you became a hockey coach for a moment there. He's not a bad guy either, so thank <laughs> you for true. that. Yeah, he won a Stanley like Cup. Yeah, no, there you go. Uh, this is an interesting one because I think many people on the face of it say, sure, I support cleaning the environment and I support getting rid of single-use plastics because it fills landfills and I support all these things. So if that's the case, what is the downside or is there any kind of downside to considering a, a rule like this? Well, I mean, uh, it's it's hard to uh, to uh, claim anything uh, against uh, making companies greener, making our packaging greener. Uh, I think everyone wants to help the planet. Uh, I mean, climate change is a big issue. It's it's arguably the most uh, significant threat to uh, to agriculture, to our agri-food sector. Uh, it's making our food more expensive almost daily. Uh, so, yeah, I think we need to do something. But at the same time, uh, whatever thing we need to do that we're not doing is likely going to cost more. Uh, there's, there's a reason why we're addicted to plastic. Uh, it is cheap. It is affordable. It is accessible. It keeps our food fresh, safe for as long as possible. Uh if we would have been able to find an alternative that is cheaper, more effective to keep our food safe and affordable, we would have done it already. So the good news here is that the government uh, is looking at creating a level playing field for the industry, which is really, I think, what we need. But at the same time, uh, we're going to have to figure out a way to do this without compromising our, our food affordability in Canada. Is there something right now that is in that is ready to take the place of plastic? Leaving aside, we'll get to the cost thing in a second. Is there anything that actually exists that could do the job as well as plastic to keep our food fresh? Oh, absolutely. Well, you can go either on the uh, on the reusable route, reusing packaging, or you can actually go with compostable, uh, biodegradable. Uh, uh, solutions. I mean, that, that is another solution. They do exist, uh, but all of these solutions do end up costing more money. Or, of course, uh, what also happens is that these solutions could actually compromise convenience. Now, uh, we can see more people bringing bags to the grocery store now because we're, we're asked to do it, and, and now people are starting to be used to it. But uh, will people be able to bring containers and things like that? Or what about uh, things that uh, aren't necessarily uh, as uh, that could actually compromise communities? Like, for example, reusing 
uh, or using compostable packaging, mm. uh, will the integrity of the food uh, be compromised when it's in your cupboard or in your fridge? People will be concerned about that. And our food safety culture in Canada is very, very strong. I, you know, when you say that, you, you always hear that people say, oh, sure, I would do that. I would do that. And yet you go to the coffee shop and many coffee shops now would allow you to bring in your own reusable coffee cup so you don't have to take one from them. And I almost never see anybody doing this. Even people who probably are very environmentally conscious, I rarely see anyone do this. So it's really, it's, it's got to be because it's really just not very convenient. That's right. So this is very much about you know, tackling the real issue in the food industry. I actually think that packaging is is the big issue. What we've done so far is is to go after long hanging fruits like bags and utensils and things like that, which really was a must. But the big problem, of course, is packaging. So I think it's we have to give some credit to the government to look into this matter. Uh, but at the same time, I think we also need to be honest with consumers. This is a this is not going to come cheap, and whatever you're doing right now, well, it's not going to look the same in the future just because of of some of the changes that are actually lying ahead. You know, let's get to the part where you just said cheap, and you talk about affordability before and the cost of things. I I, I really wonder if at this moment in time, when food costs are going up so much and people are struggling to pay for food. I really wonder what the response is if a law were to come in saying we're going to ban this and hey, your food costs are going to go up by another 10% or 15% to deal with this, if people are yeah. going to be okay with that. Exactly. Well, you, you, you only look at the last 12 months, food prices have gone up and uh, who was blamed for that mostly? Grocers, the industry, they know that. So if prices go up due to packaging, do you think that the government will be blamed for it? No way. So the industry knows that. And so if prices go up, they'll get the blame and uh, and they'll get more costs. Uh, it will cost more to do whatever they're doing without getting any credit or seeing any market currency to what they're doing. So does this happen then? Because ultimately I would think that the government, one of the things the government is going to be thinking about, they... If the public relations could be spun to say, hey, your groceries are going up and it's now on the government, they're the ones who are making it more expensive with their laws. Is a government going to take that chance, especially as we're moving towards another election? Well, that's the thing. But it's, I mean, supply chain economics are really, really complex. So it's hard for a government to come in and promise this or promise that. You can certainly make some uh, some headway by helping innovation uh, occur. And, and, and the government has already been doing that, to be honest, uh, both provincially and, and, and nationally. Uh, but at the end of the day, it boils down to building economies of scales. And uh, some companies are going to be good at, uh, at building, building up capacity to offer greener solutions to the industry. But it is going to take a while. Mm. And so that's why I think we all need to Take a deep breath and understand exactly what is going to happen if we actually make our food stores greener. That is uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, food, the food professor, not professional hockey coach, although maybe in another <laughs> lifetime that'll, uh, that'll happen. Always appreciate you coming on. Thanks for doing this. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Taylor Swift is coming to this area. Six shows at Rogers Center in November. Six shows at the Jays Stadium. It's a lot of seats. Uh, other people don't get it at all. What is the big deal? Um, let me bring in Eric Alper. He, he's a guy who probably knows whether it's a big deal or not. He is a music writer and publicist and... I don't know, knowing, knowing Eric and who he's worked with over the years, he probably was the guy who worked as Taylor Swift's promoter her first time through or something. I don't know. Eric, how are you today? No, I wasn't, but I was the guy that on this very program about two months ago said that Taylor Swift was going to announce Canadian dates soon. And if she does, it's going to be November, 2024. Mm. And look at me. I should have bet. You should have. If I would have bet and won, I could afford a pair of tickets to go to Taylor's Maybe. in Toronto. Maybe, because it looks like, now it doesn't say yet what the price is, although I've looked around to what it is in other places, and 
Basically, it looks like in American money anyway, it's between like 50 bucks and 500 bucks, depending on where. So I was doing a little math here and I was trying to figure out like, why is Taylor Swift doing six shows? Well, first, because I guess because she can sell them out, but two, and I'm going low ball here, Eric, I'm going really low ball. But if we say the average ticket price is a hundred bucks, and I think it'll be a lot higher than a hundred on average, but if the average is a hundred bucks. And there's 40,000 seats in that place that they can fill for a concert. She's doing that six nights. That's $24 million in a week she's making. There's why she's coming to Toronto. Oh, you would be awful on the prices, right? Um, <laughs> you're, you're looking at around 60 to $70 million she's going to make from these shows. Um, so far, on average, the, so far in 2023, each person is spending around $1,300 Come on. US on Taylor Swift. Come on. This, this is not just the tickets, but this is parking. This is merchandise. This is a cut, perhaps, of the food and the alcohol and all of that stuff coming in. She is one of the highest grossing artists per person in music history, and the tour is not even a quarter of the way through. So, so far... You know, the city of Toronto could be looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of, of you know, 80 to $90 million worth of revenue just based on these alone. Um, and But I think that this is going to be it. Like, I think those dates of November 14th, 15th, and 16th, and then it's the U.S. Thanksgiving weekend, and then she's back in the city for the 20th, 22nd, 23rd. Um, I think this is going to be it. I, I don't see why I, I don't see how she's going to be able to do an Ottawa or Montreal or Vancouver. I think this is her way of saying, and I, again, I could be totally wrong. This is her way of saying, if you want to come and see me, here are six opportunities to to come on down. Yeah. And, and I think people who are, you know, super fans would come from Ottawa or would even come from Montreal. I don't, maybe there's something out in Vancouver. I don't know. Or, or maybe I think she played Seattle so that you could, you know, you could have gone down yeah. there and that probably covers it. But so how much does, how much did you say, were you guessing that she would then, that this concert would gross in Toronto in those six days? What were, what did you say? Yeah. About 60 million. Okay. How much would an artist, what percent would an artist, would she make out of that? It depends. Um, sometimes when you're live based, you're doing straight ahead deals or you're offering them a flat rate to do X amount of shows and that's it. Sometimes you're averaging anywhere between 50% and 95% of the door. Wow. For her, like right into her pocket. Right into her pocket. And she can thank Led Zeppelin for that because back in the early 1970s, it used to be a 90-10 split for the venue and the promoter and the artist would come home with with 10% of that, but Led Zeppelin said, we don't need you to promote these shows. We just have to announce the fact that Taylor Swift is coming or Led Zeppelin is coming back in that day. And look, she just promoted the event on Instagram six hours ago. It is 3.5 million likes so far. That's roughly 22, mm. 23 million people have seen this, this banner already just only through our website. They don't have to do billboards. They don't have to take out advertising no. in the paper. She's done it already. No. And so she could legitimately, she could make $40 million for a week in Toronto. That's, 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 oh, that's pretty good. Now, here's the other thing about this. I remember a number of years ago when Garth Brooks came to Hamilton at the time, the guy who was running first Ontario center, we were chatting about how it worked and they would be on Ticketmaster monitoring. And he was on the phone with Garth Brooks and his manager. And as they see how many people are waiting and how many tickets are sold, Garth Brooks would then say, okay, add another show. Okay. Add another show. Like he was making that call. This one, if you're going to say we're going to have concerts at Roger Center, a huge stadium, six, you have to be absolutely positively sure if you're Taylor Swift that you can sell those out because it looks terrible if you can't, but I got a feeling that there is going to be no problem selling that out. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a hundred percent right. Um, but there's a lot of mechanisms in place to ensure that the artist always looks good. Um, there's a verified fan pre-sale sign-up that's going on now until I think Saturday. Um, nobody knows how many tickets could be available five days before those tickets go on sale to the general public. It could be 10 tickets. It huh. could be 10,000. Either way, they're going to be gone. Taylor Swift looks great. When those tickets go on sale to the general public, nobody's going to be aware in the general public 
exactly how many tickets are going to be on sale. Um, because the reasoning behind it is that Ticketmaster could always hold some back based on season box holders for the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, they get first dibs on tickets as well. So if you logged in four months from now and see a pair of tickets, it's not that those weren't already sold. It was just that those were held back. Taylor Swift looks good. Yeah. They're not going to make her. Slice it. They're yeah. not going to let her not sell this thing out and look like they overshot it. You know, they must have no, lots sure. of, we got to go. There must be lots of facts and data that show they could probably sell this out eight times. And so let's do it six and uh, it's bizarre. It's crazy. It's really, really, really crazy. But there you go. Uh, Eric Alper, always appreciate you coming on. Thanks for doing this. Oh, happy to do it, man. We'll talk soon. Think about that. 40 million probably is a low ball number for what she will take home from her Toronto stay. No wonder she's going to like Toronto. I would like Toronto if I was going to make $40 million in a week. I would cheer for the Argos if you would pay me $40 million for a week of work. Don't say that, Scott. Don't say that. I, I left a pause there. I'm still waiting for anyone to call in and make that offer. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Everything is costing more. And now there's a new report out that says that because of our aging population, per person income over the next 20 years could be dropping by over $11,000. Your money that you're taking home, your income could be dropping by $11,000. And why is that? Well, let me bring in my next guest who can help us explain this. He is Jake Foss, senior economic, a senior economist with the Fraser Institute. Jake, thanks for doing this. Thanks very much for having me. So explain how an aging population will make my or your or someone else's personal income drop. Yeah, it's a great question. So ultimately, um, as the seniors portion of the population continues to steadily increase in Canada, that has important economic and fiscal consequences for the country. Um, so essentially has an effect on labor productivity. Um, and it also means that we have a smaller proportion of people participating in the workforce as well. Um, so that means there's less revenue available for governments compared to a situation where the seniors population was a lot more stable. Um, and it also means that there's a, a slower economic growth over time. Uh, which means that your incomes aren't growing as fast as they otherwise would be. Um, so this is one of the main reasons why Canada's aging population could lower per person income by as much as $11,200 over the next 20 years. Okay. So one, one of the things, when I first heard this, one of the things that came to mind was, all right, so if I am younger and there's more older people in the country who are still going to get paid CPP or OAS, uh, if there's fewer of us to try and fill that and hold that, they're going to have to put in more. Is that one of the things too? Well, certainly one of the aspects is on the fiscal side of things. So we, we're, there's likely going to be increased healthcare spending as you have a higher um, senior population. Um, and they, also on the public pension side, old age security as well. So there's pressures on the spending side of things. Um, and as you mentioned, there's also pressure on the revenue side of things moving in the opposite direction because you have a smaller proportion of people participating in the workforce and contributing to those programs. Um, so there's a lot of concerns on those two aspects that revenues and spending are kind of moving in those two different directions. Um, so governments have to take corrective actions um, to kind of mitigate those impacts of the aging population moving forward. So if I reword what you're saying here, um, could I also say, or would it not be accurate to say that the average younger person is going to be paying 11,000 more in taxes over the next 20 years? Is it going to taxes or is it not only going to taxes where you're going to get walloped? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, ultimately, um, one of the, the considerations is that as you have slower growth in revenue over time and you're having faster growth in spending, ultimately, you know, governments like they're doing right now are financing this by debts and deficits. And ultimately, that is actually a burden on future generations of Canadians who have to pay for that through taxes and future tax increases um, over the next 20 years or so. Um, so, you know, we could see younger generations of Canadians face higher tax bills in the future due to the aging population and also the decisions of governments um, to, to finance all this spending with just deficits, essentially. That is, though, assuming that governments are going to try and pay off the debt that they're accruing. I've heard a number of people over the last number of years as the debt has grown, whether it's because of COVID spending or anything else, say, look, we're just going to have to live with owning this debt and we're never going to pay it off. So just 
get used to it. Do you anticipate there is going to come a day when a younger generation is going to have to pay off that debt? Yeah, another good, interesting question. Part of the issue is uh, it's not just the debt that you're, you're paying. It's also the debt interest costs that you're paying as well. Um, so right now, as we have the Bank of Canada increasing interest rates, um, and as, as you also accumulate more and more debt, um, the, the amount of money that has to go towards just paying the interest to service that debt that you're accumulating over time has to be paid by taxpayers over time. Um, we've already seen federal interest costs double over the last two or three years. Um, so this is significant and growing expense for um, taxpayers in Canada. So the bill does come due uh, sooner rather than later. It's not just about um, the total debt number. It's also about, you know, the interest that you're having to pay just to service that debt every year. Does this mean then, we, we were having a discussion earlier in the week about housing and immigration and, you know, a million new Canadians coming in and the challenges in the healthcare system and the housing system of where to put them. On the flip side, does it mean though that bringing in a million new Canadians who hopefully, presumably are going to be productive members of society, that that is going to help alleviate some of this if we can just keep building up the population? Yeah, so policymakers need to expand the country's labor force is one of the kind of potential solutions to the aging population. Now there's obviously going to be challenges on housing and other things, um, but, you know, those are kind of separate issues that will need to be dealt with by governments. Um, but increasing the number of working age immigrants is going to be important. But particularly important, though, is expediting, expediting their successful integration into the Canadian labour market. So it's not just about bringing in a whole bunch of people. We need to make sure that they have the necessary skills and we need to make sure that they're fully integrated into the labour market uh, so they can hit the ground running and that um, the labour market is, is working properly. So I think that's the really important part as part of the solution for government. Mm. It is, uh, it's certainly something to, uh, to contemplate with, uh, these are big numbers that, uh, that uh, are a little scary to look at $11,000 over the next 20 years that we will cut into our, our wealth. That's, um, hmm. uh, Jake Foss, senior economist with the Fraser Institute is sober. Appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks very much for having me on. It's, uh, as I say, I think that's probably the word it's sobering. We, as I said, an hour ago, we were talking about food and things and everything is so much more costly now that the, the thought of, you know, over generations, we've always wanted the next generation to do better than us. And it, maybe that's going to happen, but it just seems more and more distant right now with all the things that are going on with the cost of housing and the cost of food and the cost of this and the cost of that. It just, it, it seems... I don't know what's the word, dismal, not dismal, D- daunting. It just seems like it's daunting that it, it, this may be the time when we finally have said, no, we're not going to do better than what our parents did, many people. That's, that's discouraging, isn't it? But reality, reality. QP5167 has uh, received a no board report. This is uh, setting up for a potential strike with the city of Hamilton. Thousands of workers who work throughout the city and uh, looking for more money, among other things, I'm assuming uh, they haven't, they've not really negotiated in public. So it's not entirely fully clear, but I'll tell you why we say that. A, because I talked to them for a story I did with, in The Spectator uh, a little while back, but B, because in Hamilton, 1,100 non-unionized, salaried non-unionized workers got their second raise of the year on July the 1st on Canada Day. It means that I- this year a number of them are making as much as 15% more than they did last year. And the union has noticed, the unions have noticed this. So when it comes time to negotiate for new money with the city, the union leadership has said they're not making bones about it. They've said, look, if there is money to pay the non-union salaried workers, surely there's money to pay us. Well, now though, we're in a tough spot. I want to bring in Larry Deany, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, chat about this. Mr. Mayor, thank you for this. Hey, Scott, uh, always a pleasure to speak with you. Well, you as well. And, and I, this is, to me, this is entirely predictable where we are right now, because as soon as some of these non-unionized workers got their second raise of the year and are now making as much as 15% more, you knew the unions are going to say there's money there, so we want ours too. And that's why um, often what happens, and of course, these are different groups, right? The non-unionized sure. groups are are, are uh, accommodated in a different way from the bargaining units 
and there are a number of bargaining units, uh, units as well. But the city is, is very, very cognizant of the fact that they look at each other's contracts and uh, <clears throat> sometimes strategically they will let the one that is going to get the most uh, greatest settlement go first so that then they can piggyback on that. Uh, and it's done right across the province, not just in Hamilton. Uh, so the city is cognizant of that, and that's why often they, they offer the same kind of percentage deal uh, to each of the groups just to keep that sort of parity of peace uh, in the labor force, whether you're unionized or not. Um, so uh, you're right. The, the unionized folks are saying if the, these folks got that much, then we want as much as well. And, of course, the, the difference is this. It's in the number of employees. So the non-union people are far fewer in number than the unionized people. And so if you give a slightly higher percentage for whatever reason, and it's usually because they lag, they don't lead. Usually the non-union folks lag. They don't lead. Uh, if you give them a higher percentage in pure dollar terms, it's far less than if you were to give the same percentage to more people. Yeah. And, and like everything you've just said makes, makes sense and, you know, is, is right. Except if I'm a member of the union, all that stuff is irrelevant to me. All I'm looking at is the city has money to pay some of its workers. Why can it not pay us as well? Yeah. And, and of course, uh, the thing to understand as well is that sometimes these are pre-settlement dances that uh, uh, bargaining units will do to apply pressure. They will take strike votes. They will uh, ask for uh, uh, no board reports or they'll ask for reports. And if there's a no board report, then essentially then they are clear to strike. And very seldom is there a job action. In fact, I can't remember the last time, certainly not in my tenure, nor in the tenure of, uh, of Fred, um, um, do I recall any job action at all although a number were threatened. So my guess is that there will be a settlement. <clears throat> and, of course, the fact that the union, um, is, you know, is, is, is pleading its case publicly and speaking to reporters like you, who wrote a good article, by the way, um, um, is, to, is to increase that public pressure. And the, the case they're making is, look, we're being treated unfairly. Uh, you're giving them this, uh, but you're not even settling with us. And so that, that public discourse, they hope, will be in their favor. Remains to be seen. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the numbers will tell the tale. Uh, the bargaining is not done by counselors. It's done by professional staff that looks after this. And council has to, of course, ratify whatever is happening. But my sense with this council, at least, is that they are very sensitive to the needs of the labor force, mm. and we are coming out of um, we are coming out of COVID, where people have uh, perhaps lost a step or two in terms of salary increases uh, because there was a, a bit of a hiatus, and so there is some sympathy for that. Larry, let me jump in though. Let me jump in for just one sec though, because I want to just jump on something you just said, where they're very sensitive to the labor force. Are is council also very sensitive? to the ability of the municipality and the residents to pay taxes, because ultimately they're the ones who are going to have to pay for this. And huge increases, like some of the increases on the non-union were large. Are, there's going to come a point, well, this adds up, and are they as sensitive to the people who are paying the taxes as they are to their workers? Well, my last point was going to be exactly that, but if I feel sorry for anyone, it's the taxpayer that's going to have to pay the bill. Uh, and not not that that we should begrudge uh, getting uh, giving people um, fair salaries, uh, providing they provide uh, the the work we need to keep this municipality going. But you're right; it lands on our feet as uh, as property uh, ratepayers, and uh, we're just um, either going to um, have to suck it up or or give council the message that enough is enough. And uh, to hold the line, and then the chips will fall where they may, which may mean a labor disruption. I, I don't know if people, I don't know yeah. if people realize in this city how much we actually pay for employee-related expenses. Last year, the city spent eight hundred and seventy-nine million dollars on that. This year, it's budgeted nine hundred and twenty-four million. We're we're within a year or two, honestly, and I'm not exaggerating this. We're within a year or two of hitting a billion dollars a year for our employee expenses. 
Right, and and that uh, is understandable given that our services are not uh, in the production of widgets. We provide services um, um, on on any number of, of issues. That means that people have to perform those services, and uh, and uh, we are driven like all municipalities by uh, labor costs because we hire a lot of people uh, to do these things, whether they be. Uh, you know, people who work in the roads and, and, and clear our snow or cut our grass or work in our many agencies uh, that we have in municipalities. So uh, our, our budgets are always top-heavy with labor costs because we are a labor-intensive organization. Now, something can be done about that. Um, you know, I don't know the last time that um, they examined um, the, the numbers and they're very tough. I try to do that, actually, uh, to look at, you know, what's the standard? How many employees should a city of our size have? Uh, but but municipalities are all over the map. There isn't a clear sort of standard uh, that you can compare one municipality to the other because we offer different programs. Uh, but that's something that could be done, you know? Mm, it's... We, are, we, are we too... Uh, too rich in uh, in the number of employees. Uh, do, do we have people uh, who are on the payroll that maybe we can do without? Uh, I mean, it seems to me over the last number of years we've added staff. We have not subtracted. Yeah. Larry, we got to run, um, unfortunately. But you know, your point again. I think where this is going to be discussed, exactly what you're just saying, is if in fact we we get a 10% or more tax increase like has been talked about next year, I think it's going to be very front and center of how do we afford this and is it time to start making some hard well, decisions. And, but, and just a, a last quick point. Yeah, very quickly. We haven't talked about the LRT. The, uh, uh-huh. We're looking to run the LRT, which means adding staff for that as well. Um, and uh, that's going to be uh, uh, maybe the right thing to do, but there. it'll it'll cost the municipality as well. Larry Deani, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, thank you as always for this. Thank you. Everything these days has been tied into the Barbie movie. Everything's you know there's pink everything, and well, I think we've now discovered we've now found. The point, Tom, at which I'm going to bring Tom in here. Tom's on the other side of the glass. He's been playing all the music and taking the calls and doing all the heavy lifting today. We've now discovered where the pink stuff has jumped the shark. It's gone one step too far. I mean, pink cars, pink clothes, pink glasses, pink whatever, all that stuff. That's, you know, fine. Um, But I've discovered now the one thing that is just so disgusting that I think we've reached a point where we can say, okay, let's pull back on the pink just a little bit. In Brazil, Burger King has a new burger out and it is, oh, no. um, it is the uh, BK Barbie combo and it comes with a pink milkshake and a donut with pink icing on it. And the burger itself is like a regular old burger that you would have. Are you looking at your, uh, Tom's mouth is gaping open right I now. He's probably found a photo. Up. Uh, yeah. It's what? got some form of sauce that is described as being smoky, but it is pink as in the color of chewed bubble gum or heavily thickened viscous Pepto-Bismol <laughs> spread all <laughs> over this say, burger. Yeah. It is, this is the most disgusting color to see on a hamburger that you could ever imagine. Yeah. Like, okay. Here, like, look, I'm sure they made it edible at least, but can you, I I can't imagine anybody who would see that pink and go, yum, mm, let me, let me bite into this. If I was biting a piece of gum, sure. Maybe, yeah. But on a if I had an upset stomach, yes. <laughs> but as part of a burger, a salty, meaty, not sweet, th- this is, this is where, this is where it becomes ridiculous. This is where somebody in some office somewhere said, Hey boss, I got a great idea. Let's slather some pink goo all over our burger and people will love this stuff. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, it it, it almost is. Yeah. No, not yum. Yum. (laughs) It is almost making me gag just to look at this. I I can't fathom biting into something that looks like that. That is just horrible. Sorry, Burger King. I mean, you do a lot of good stuff. I do like your Whoppers, but not with pink schlop 
plastered all over it. I don't even I, I don't even know how you describe that. So go look it up online. Just look up Burger King Pink. You'll see it. You tell me if that is something that is edible. Now, to that end, if you eat this, we now have the next step for you though. There's another step? There's another step. Is the burger going to be pink? No, 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 no. In uh, Mexico, El Salvador, and Latin America, you can now buy Barbie pink coffins. <laughs> uh, there's a photo of a wedding with a Barbie pink coffin being carried upon the pallbearer's shoulders. So if you eat the burger and you have the reaction to it that I expect <laughs> I would have, you can then be transported immediately to the Barbie pink coffin and uh, dropped into the hole for eternity as that color of pink. I, you know, th there are just, there are just some steps that go too far. It's all good. It's all a good idea until it gets to this. And then somebody needs to step in and say, hey, Gustav, no, no. You know what? Go back to your earlier marketing ideas. They were good. This one, not so much. But wait, there's more because you can get buried with a pink headstone. Can you really? No, probably oh. not. Uh, well, no, chia, I thought you had found something <laughs> else further. No, uh, but can you imagine though? Like it's, it would stick out like, well, a pink headstone. Don't you think? Now that you say it, I'm almost <laughs> certain that somewhere someone has been buried with a pink headstone. I'm going to look this up. Hold up. Because, you know, because, because Barbie. I, I and, and, you know, here's the other thing. Now, you know. I'm not a young girl who played with, my sister played with Barbies when I was a kid. I won't tell it. Well, I will tell you what we did to her Barbies. <laughs> my, my, fr my friend, she had a homemade Barbie play, Barbie house that she made with boxes that were stacked on top of each other and she decorated. It was very artistic and she did a very nice job. Um, we used to stand at the other end of the room with tennis balls and it was like a carnival game to see if we could ping off Barbie yeah. in the house. Um, <laughs> this generally just got us in trouble is what happened because, you know, we would destroy the Barbie room that, uh, anyway, uh, I, I just, I, I, is Barbie really, is really, is Barbie where you want to, is, is that the mountain, the hill you want to die on? The Barbie Literally. Pink? I don't know. Anyway. I, it depends on the person, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I guess it is. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hey, listen, thank you to everybody for uh, for being with us today. It's um, Barbie Pink or Not. Uh, we appreciate you being along. We'll be back at 3 tomorrow. For now, we'll talk to you soon. Have a great evening. See you tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Have a good one. Oh.